0: It's better because of you and that's a fact. We're in this together, you and I. We're in this together, you and I. I keep the basement much cooler than I keep the main level. So I've got a two-level two, oh. two level unit. You enter in right. on the main level, and then I have this basement, which also has a door and windows to the outside because it's kind of carved into the side of a, a street. Oh, I have, okay. I have a backyard. And so I'm always upstairs. The kitchen and this second bedroom are downstairs where I am now. And now sure. I'm freaking cold down here. <laughs> Cause my electricity bill would be $800 a month. If I heated it down here as much as I do upstairs.
1: So, so do you have the ability to heat the different levels at different amounts? I mean, is there a heater on each level? Do you have like baseboard heating or what's, what's the situation?
0: Yeah. So I have like cobbled together baseboard heating. So I don't even have like a thermostat. All of them have a little knob on them. Oh yeah.
1: I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: I shit you not. My electricity bill last month, was four hundred ninety five dollars, oh,
1: dude. Were you heating both at that time, and then no. you said, well, "Yeah, that it, was no." Just-
0: that was me doing full tilt upstairs. So now I'm doing zone heating upstairs. But if I was heating oh, the man. downstairs, is like I have to heat it a little bit so my pipes don't freeze. That's the right, main of course, thing. yeah. So I can't just not have any heat down here but I, ha- I already was heating them way less because I'm gonna go, I'm never down there. I, I hardly right. ever use my kitchen. Unless there's a guest here, I don't really need to keep the guest room hot. But now I'm wearing sure. my winter coat in the basement because <laughs> it's cold down here. But I the desk is right next to a heater that I just turned up to high. So that's sure. the cost to live in, baby. It
1: is. So when you have zone heating up there, so does that mean that, like you said, you have cobbled together baseboards? So does that mean like in your bedroom, the baseboards work differently in or in on a different zone than the ones that might be in the living room area.
0: No, I'm calling it zone heating where okay. <laughs> uh, you haven't it been it. in my place yet, but no, no. It, it is a rinky dink Chinatown apartment. The building was built in 1870 right. and used to be heated by fireplace. So there's yep. a huge chimney stack, but it's filled with bricks. Cause at some point the owners bricked it off and so, Yeah, they
1: were like, dude, no fire hazard
0: here. Yes, so the contractor who redid this place to turn it from one big brownstone into two apartments is a low-rent contractor, and sure. they just covered up the fireplaces with boards. Oh, nice. Anyway, they never installed any kind of ductwork or anything, so there's not like a furnace in here. All I have is all of these d- different, not coordinated... There's no thermostat. So if I want to change the heating of my entire house, let me count in my head. One, two, I'll count aloud. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's nine different knobs that I have to set. (laughs) That's awesome. And again, right now, the price of electricity in Boston is 25 cents per kilowatt hour, which is really high. Yeah, that's and true. all and baseboard heating is the most inefficient form of heating. Electrical heat is the most inefficient form of electrical heat. Yes, or of, yep. of heat. So right. Um. So yeah. So even not having my house warm, and it like it's a brick building, but the, I don't think there's really any insulation. It's just no, probably not the wall and then the bricks. And sure. so the bricks get cold and then it gets cold inside and the windows are also probably from the 1960s. So they're a little so are, drafty. So
1: have, and I mean this seriously, have you thought about putting in like the.
0: the I've tried. Um, I tried. Insul-
1: window insulating? No, no dice.
0: He, um, I put it on a couple. So the thing is like when I, when I tested for drafts, the windows actually seemed pretty well sealed. I think. Okay. Most of it's just convection from the glass itself, or sure. conduction. But I don't know. It's fine. It's not cold upstairs, but my electricity bill is high. So, I, right. Boston also has like community choice electricity, like bargaining that I signed up for that apparently I wasn't on. That's cheaper than the Eversource basic package. Okay. So it's the I don't have to make any changes like it just automatically will change over to the community choice collective bargaining one okay the price for that is 10.9 cents per kilowatt hour wow just because the city does collective bargaining but they don't opt you in you have to ask to opt in and so i guess the person who lived here before didn't know about it and wasn't opted in so i was on that at my old place by default but i wasn't on it here and i didn't know that Of course, because my bill was fine when I first moved in, but then winter quickly ensued. And I was like, holy shit, these electricity bills are insane. Right. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Welcome back to You'll Understand When You're Younger. I'm Jordan. And I'm Brian. And today we've got an exciting episode about the history of Mezcal. Dad, do you have Mezcal in front of you right now?
1: I do, Jordan, because I knew we were going to be covering this. So... I am drinking some mezcal. How
0: about yourself? I have a mezcal margarita on the desk in front of me and hopefully I won't knock it over and blow this all the shit. So I was thinking the same thing. I was
1: like, where am I gonna set this? Not that I should have an issue, but who knows? I, I was like, I've gotta be cautious.
0: My desk upstairs is really big and this little I turn it's really just a side table that I turned into a desk down here is really oh, sure. small. So sure. we'll see what happens. And yep, also I just had, we'll see what the recording quality is here. Cause my display keeps cutting out. I'm hoping that's not also happening oh, to my
1: audio. So from my end, Jordan, I, you have not cut out once just okay. so you're aware. Um, you know, I have started the, the recording stuff on my side too. So.
0: Okay. Good to know. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about Mezcal. I had a question of the week first though. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And I'm going to ask this too, but what kind of Mezcal are you drinking right now? And that's not the question of the week.
1: Uh, So I am drinking the Mezcal that you bought for me for Christmas. Uh So this is ancestral uh, composed and uh, created Mezcal. So this is uh, very good. And so I'm drinking it a little bit more the traditional style of drinking Mezcal, which I will explain a little bit later.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm having, I can't remember what it's called. Let me
1: look. All right. Why don't you look? While you're looking, I can mention mine is called Codigo 1850. That is the brand that I have. It is very smooth. It's uh, got a little bit of smokiness, which you would expect from a Mezcal. But it also is super smooth. This is great sipping mezcal. I do I, not think I don't I'm, I don't think I'm going to make a, a cocktail with this ever because it's too nice.
0: Well, I have Mont Alban uh, ah. Mezcal Con Gusano, which means with the with the worms. Yes. yes. So there's a little. There's a little yes. We'll
1: talk about that as well. But my
0: question of the week for you is: What is? And I don't think we've done this one already. What is the best advice you've ever received?
1: I no, we haven't uh, done that at all. Um, Wow, the best advice I've ever received. That's a tough question because you know I've I've received a lot of good advice throughout the years. The problem is I don't know how to remember. Uh, Yeah, You don't take any of
0: it. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not not sure if I don't take it. I probably incorporate it, but don't always remember that it was specifically given. Um, You know, this is going to be a little bit of a cop-out. And I think that you would agree though, that I live this way. Just be yourself um, and not try to be something that somebody else wants you to be, or try to, you know, put yourself into somebody else's shoes. Uh, That doesn't mean that I don't change and, and uh, morph a little bit when I'm around different people but I tend to be myself and I tend not to really care what people think of me. So to me, that's the best advice. Uh, like I said, it's, it's a little cliche, but that is, uh, how I live. You think you really
0: don't think what people care of you though? I know you are yourself, but you don't think what, you don't care what people think.
1: You know, there's probably certain circumstances in which I do care, but, um, you know, a lot of times I, I, I'm going to do something. And if people don't like it, you know, tough bounce. And I think that there's, like I said, there's probably circumstances, you know, maybe at work uh, you know, there's got to be some things, some uh, political aspect of things that you got to play. And you know, you're working with clients as well. And you want to make sure that they like you, but otherwise I don't, I have never been one to, to succumb to peer pressure. Well, Brian, you should do this or you should try to do that. I I like to make the decisions that I like to make. Yeah. And if someone doesn't like it tough bounce.
0: Yeah. You, I would say that's true. True of you. Yes, for sure. Sure.
1: So I guess, like I said, that's probably a little cliche, but I think it does fit me.
0: Yeah, I agree. The best. I'm going ad- be to
1: I'm gonna be curious. Sorry for interrupting. I'm going to be curious to hear what, what yours is.
0: The best advice I ever received was actually not advice designed for me. I think it was div- advice you were giving to Taylor. I know what Taylor's answer would be. He would say that it's the, be aware of your surroundings. Oh, sure. You said to us, and that is probably the second best advice I've ever received. All right. Like definitely made me who I am now because I'm hyper aware and overthink everything. So that's probably (laughs) your fault. Thanks. (laughs) But the, the top one was, um, You really only need, and this isn't like deep, but it was just like true and really good advice that I used. You really only need two friends. That's what you said once. Yeah. You were like, you don't really need like, because there comes a time in everybody's life where they realize that they're maybe like a little isolated. I don't know. Like for some people, it doesn't hit until adulthood. But for me, it hit when I went to college and I was having like a hard time meeting people. And Taylor had kind of gone through a similar thing where he had gone off to school and he's like, I don't really like any, anybody that I've met here. I don't really know anybody here. And like, this isn't great. And you said to him, well, like you don't need to have a million friends. You really just need to have two good friends. And nobody had ever like said that out loud to me before. And that like makes a lot of sense. Cause I think when you're a kid and you're in like middle school and high school, there's a ton of pressure like with who's popular and who's not. And oh, for sure, you just come up with this natural, like understanding, like, oh, life is good. If I have large numbers of people that I can count as my friends, like it's a numbers game. I don't know right. how that, like, I maybe that's just the natural order of human beings to like create that dynamic. Um, But it's definitely just one that you think as a kid. And no one had ever really said to me, like, oh, you know, it's okay. Like, it's okay if you just have, like, two good friends. Like, one might not be enough. But two, like, if you just find two, you're good enough. Because you have one person to go to. And if you don't really want to go to that person, then you have somebody else to go to. (laughs) Yep. And I don't know if you follow that advice yourself or if it was just something you were saying offhand. But it's always been like super calming for me because I've moved a lot in my life and when I go somewhere new there's like that oh I'm not happy I haven't integrated well here I don't know people blah, blah 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 happened when I went to middle school happened when I went to high school happened when I went to college and happened when I moved to North Carolina happened when I moved to Boston but like always I had that where I was like, okay, well now I just need to find my two people. And when you think of it that way, it just gets so much easier to become like content and fulfilled because you're not like trying to chase some unrealistic goal of being the most popular person in Boston. Like I'm never going to be, you know, Jason Tatum. So how about I just find two people who can be my friends and that's good. And I don't know. It's just really soothing advice.
1: I, I'm I'm glad that that hit home with you, Jordan. I, I guess, uh, you know, I do kind of remember that, but to one thing that you mentioned there, do I live that way? I have a, I, I would say I have a lot of people that I would consider to be friends, but I have a very small circle of good friends. And the funny thing is for me, I would say that I have a couple of friends that I've known for, you know, most of my life. Uh and then I've got some friends that I've met here in the last 20 years that are, you know, very in in very close circle. Uh, but that was that is something that I did follow. Uh, you know, as I got in different situations, like, okay, find one person you can count on in this circum in this circumstance. And that is helpful. And that's maybe, Jordan, actually getting back to, you know, when I said what's the best piece of advice that I had received, maybe that's kind of what I'm thinking about. It's like, you know, when I say I don't really care what everyone else thinks of me, I probably care what the my closest friends think of me, but everybody else, not so much. yeah, and so that kind of t- ties in line with that. But I, yeah, I'm glad that that uh, that that has suited you and served you well. Uh, there's a lot of studies out there that talk about the best thing you can do with your life is to not have three hundred friends, but to find those friends that you can count on, no matter what. So if you make a phone call, they're going to answer. Right. If you have an issue, they're going to be there. And as an example of that, um I'm I'm going to mention one friend of mine specifically because it comes to a story that that you're very very familiar with. And uh it, his name is Corey. Uh, Corey Hespinide, and we'll see if he ever listens to this episode. We'll see. Uh but your mom when she was uh in her accident back in 2015 the thing that hit home with me was Corey. And it's not that other friends wouldn't do this but he happened to be the guy who did do this. Uh, Your mom was in an accident. She was in the emergency room. And I remember you and I went back to see her in the ICU unit. Uh, And because you could only take two people at a time. So I was always going to go and I was going to bring someone back. So it was your turn to go back with me. And so I let you just kind of hang out with mom for a little bit because I knew it's important for you to be able to parse things and and work through things on your own and see mom. And so I just was going to step out for, you know, a minute or two. And I parted the curtain and I walk out of the ICU area of the ER at HCMC and there is my friend, Corey. Don't know how he got there because there's police officers (laughs) and armed guards, but he got in there. And the fact that he was there at that point in time told me everything I needed to know about him as a person. I had known him before that, but the fact that I I hadn't asked him to be there, um, I didn't expect him to be there, but he was there. And that's the kind of friend you want to be able to have.
0: Yeah. Corey's the best. And, but yeah, that that's exactly the approach that I've taken. And I, I don't see everybody my age look at the world that way. So I also feel like I get a leg up from that where there's a ton of people these days, like nobody, like it, it seems like the larger share of people after college feel some responsibility to like get some separation from home. Like some, you'll always have people who stay, but it seems like a a greater share of people my age are like, oh, like, let me go off into the world and try and make it on my own. And then they get out there. And obviously it's very tough, like to go to a new city and have a job and like maybe your coworkers aren't your age. So you don't just get natural work friends. And like, now you don't know anybody in this place and it's scary and it's big and you freak out. And I think that I've been lucky approaching the world with like, well, I don't need a million friends. I need two. That's what I'm going to aim for is two. And then um if I meet a million people, if I like two of them, then that's enough. I don't know. It's just yeah. It's really simple, but it it was really it changed my mindset a lot when I heard it.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad that something that I said sunk in, Jordy.
0: Yeah, it's crazy cuz most of what you say is complete bullshit. <laughs> just- <laughs> Exactly. But that one worked, so I don't know. Now I don't know what to think. uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Speaking of you talking for a long time about a variety of things, I think we should hop into the feature story.
1: Yes. Let's talk about the feature story of Mezcal. So we're going to talk about the history of Mezcal itself. I've got a lot of different aspects of this that we're going to cover. And so we'll kind of go through those. So, you know, one of the things that we can talk about when we talk about anything uh, like mezcal or, or vodka or, or, or brandy or whatever you want, there's, there's a lot of different things you can know about all of this. We can't cover all of that stuff. This is too big yeah. of a topic for us Al- to cover.
0: Alcohol is a big, like, snob thing.
1: It is. It every,
0: is. every type of it has its own kind of snob.
1: Absolutely. So we're not going to go into, well, this Mezcal is the best Mezcal versus that. That's not what we're going to go into. We're going to go into kind of kind of what the basics are. We're going to talk about where it comes from. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, kind of just a lot of historical stuff and then some some neat facts about Mezcal. So I want to make sure you understand that if you're looking to get some advice from this specific podcast about what the best Mezcal is to drink, this ain't the one. So I just want to make sure we start off with that. So. Um, a couple things. So a lot of times people think that uh you know mezcal and tequila are are related which they absolutely are. But then also people think that they're totally unrelated which they absolutely are not. So I'll I'll start off with this statement that all tequilas are a form of mezcal.
0: Really, that's not the way I would have thought it.
1: Yes, yes. But all Mezcals are not
0: tequilas. So uh, my guess would have been the exact opposite. I would have thought that because you'll tell me why, but I would have thought the exact opposite.
1: No, that was what I would have thought too when I was starting to do this. In fact, actually, you know, what made me think about using this as a topic, frankly, Jordan is the Mezcal that I'm drinking. When you bought that, you and I have kind of been getting into Mezcal a bit for, the last I would call it six to eight months, uh, we've really kind of gotten a little bit more into it, kind of enjoying the flavors of it, different than tequila.
0: Well, and when we went to Denver, that was the first time I'd ever had it. We went to Denver right. for the yes. two years yeah. ago, right for yes, the that was NBA yeah. playoffs because yeah. the Suns were yep. in it. Yes, and, and I had never right. even heard of it before. And we went to this margarita place. Do you remember what it's called? I don't. I don't. I don't. I wish I did. But they only serve you three drinks because they serve their margaritas so strong and they want to be responsible or whatever. So dad and I were already at our limit, but the sweet workaround was this woman sitting next to us had also never had mezcal before. And so she just ordered it like thinking, "Ooh, I like orange and a mezcal margarita has orange liqueur in it. So I'll have that. And she hated it because of its smoky taste. And dad yep. was like, you know, don't throw that out, bartender. I'll drink it. And yep. she was like, yeah, OK, fine. It's already poured, whatever. And so she gave it to us. And you're like, oh, like, have you had mezcal before? I was like, no, I tried it. And it tasted like a campfire, but in a good way. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yes. And I loved it. And since then I've been kind of obsessed, but you're right. We really only got into it like on a clinical basis, the probably the last eight months, I'd say. Right,
1: right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, like I said, not, not all mezcals are articulas, And, and that was a, a surprise to, to me as well. Uh, so the, the analogy that I've had people uh, share with me is that you can compare it to the way that scotch and bourbon are both whiskeys, but they're not the same, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Had...
0: Except like I would say, like I would think of tequila as the larger like whiskey, not as sure. mezcal as the whiskey kind of thing.
1: Right. Like and, where and you I could, could say it,
0: Scotch is whiskey, but not all whiskey is Scotch. Right. Or all squares so... are rectangles, kind of thing. <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly. And I think that that most people would think of it the same way that you and I did until I was doing this research. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, all tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. So here's here's what what kind of gives you that. Tequila is made from the blue agave plant specifically. So that's where it comes from. You have tequila, blue blue agave. So think of it that way. Um that's where tequila comes from and that's only where tequila comes from. Whereas mezcal can be made up from more than 30 different types of agave. And we'll talk about some of those different types a little bit later, but those, one of the types that Mezcal can be a part of is obviously blue agave. And so that's kind of where that falls into play, where the tequila is a Mezcal, but Mezcal is not necessarily a tequila.
0: Okay. I have like a broader question about that where like the absolutely. Tequila's Blue agave, but it's not roasted versus aren't all mezcals roasted? Or is that a misconception on
1: my part? No, that's exactly right. So tequila is made by steaming the agave plant in an oven before distilling it into a copper pot. Now think of it that way. So it's steaming it in an oven and then it's going into a copper pot. Whereas mezcal is heated in earthen pits. And so this is where the ancestral aspect of things. And this is why the tequila you gave me is... is so unique because they're actually following the exact quote unquote recipe, if you will, that they did back in the day. And we'll talk about where that came from as well, but it's heated in earthen pits and then they just distill it in a clay container. And because of the way that they do it, that's what gives it a little bit more of that smoky earthy flavor versus being done in in a copper pot, which is more of a sterile type of an environment. Yeah. It it
0: doesn't impose itself onto the drink
1: exactly exactly so okay. so c- a couple other things about te- tequila is that there there when you think about tequila and mezcal they are made in very specific areas in mexico okay so there is so just like there is with various different other uh alcohols
0: wine uh, there's particularly w- e-
1: e- e- champagne specifically yeah. right in for france and Prosecco. Uh, yeah yes exactly they're not considered truly Tequila are truly mezcal unless they're made in certain areas of Mexico, and so uh, there's a couple areas in which there's overlap for mezcal and tequila. So tequila is mostly made in in uh, Jalisco is where a lot of people like if you go to the Jalisco area of Mexico, that's t- that's absolutely tequila country.
0: Okay? Yeah, I've seen that um, on uh, glasses on uh- yes. Absolutely.
1: Yep. And so there's a bunch, a few other states that are mentioned there, but that's like the main one. The other one to point out is, uh, and I'm going to, I'm sorry, mispronounce this probably, but Guanajuato uh, is the one that has overlap between mezcal and tequila. In both of those Hmm. states or areas, that's where mezcal and tequila are both made. Uh, But mezcal is primarily found in Oaxaca. And so the other thing that's made in Oaxaca is, which is also one of my favorite things in Mexico, is mole. And so if you're not a, if you haven't had mole, that's kind of the chocolatey, if you will, uh, flavored sauce that comes from there. So one of my favorite things is mole enchiladas. And so mezcal and mole from Oaxaca. Uh, so that's I've that's never primarily had where I've
0: in. never had mole. I've heard that word before, but I never had it. It's it's uh,
1: and maybe we'll talk about that a different time because it's that's fairly complex as well. But I do mention uh, mole down a little bit later when we talk talk about making some cocktails. Okay. So cool. now, now now we understand that you know wh- that there is a difference between tequila and mezcal. We can talk a little bit about uh, the origin of mezcal, like where did it come from, things like that. The first thing I wanted to start with is the name itself. You know, how did it get named mezcal versus something else? And there's a very specific reason for that. So, uh, the uh, again, I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this, but the Nahuto uh, Mexicali, uh, thats a group of indigenous people. Uh, a lot of times, people will call them Aztecs. Uh, and there's the word, a couple words called metal and uh, ichali, uh, and and metal means magui, and that's another synonymous word for agave. And ichali means cooked. So it's basically cooked agave. And that's where that name comes from. So it's a combination of those words. Very
0: descriptive, yes. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so really what happens is that it's the heart of that plant itself. So it's not just the leaves, but it's actually the heart of the agave plant. That is used as part of that distillation when oh. they do the, the cooking. I
0: didn't know that either. I would have assumed that it was the leaves of the agave plant, like it is that, with a lot of other things.
1: Yes, that's exactly what I thought too. So, this was kind of fun for me to, to learn this. So, uh, you know, when, when we look at the cultural aspect of, of Mezcal and basically any alcohol, but specifically Mezcal, um, the, the folks who were indigenous to Mexico saw agave as a sacred plant. And so pre-Spanish uh, uh, visitation there, they saw this as something that was very sacred, and they had a specific, and very many specific religious rituals that played into mezcal itself. So cooking the piña, or the heart of the agave, and fermenting it was something that was practiced on a regular basis. and the, there's a myth tied to the origin of it. It is said that the that a lightning bolt struck the agave plant, cooked it, and opened it, releasing its juice.
0: That's and so sweet. If that did happen,
1: it, it, it is pretty cool. And so there's the term uh, that is used around mezcal is that that liquid is called the elixir of the gods because the gods are the ones who sent the lightning bolt to hit the agave plant, to bless the peoples of Mexico with this elixir.
0: Okay. So can I, not to take you off track, but just pitch you my idea for our Brian and Jordan's mezcal operation?
1: So we're going to have to move to Mexico,
0: but yeah. Correct. Pitch it. We buy some land in Oaxaca. Yeah. Whatever land we can find. Recently, scientists came up with a type of laser beacon whereby they can um they can guide lightning to a specific point so oh wow yeah so like it's like a lightning rod like Benjamin Franklin invented but they yeah. shoot off ions from a laser and okay. the the charge from the the electricity in the lightning bolt is attracted so then you like the lightning rod can guide where you're going to have the lightning hit so in the center of the laser guided lightning finder we put yes. a uh, an agave field in Oaxaca. Oh, nice, nice. And we claim ours is the real ancestral method <laughs> because it's lightning shot agave. That's oh, the I plan. Like, I,
1: I like that. And then on uh, as a secondary uh, portion of that, not only would we be able to do the the agave and the mezcal, but because it is Oaxaca, we could. Uh, try and uh develop our own version of mole and so we'd be very in tune with what that whole area and And
0: and, everything could be struck by lightning
1: yeah there you go i can already see the uh the logo in my mind so yeah yeah, it it looked
0: like the acdc logo but it would say (laughs) bjjj
1: I like it. I like it. Looks good. <laughs> Looks good. I like. I like. I like the pitch, Jordan. I think we'll have to try and sort through it and figure all out right. if we can get some investment. Inv-
0: First of all, like. we need six or seven million dollars to buy a laser that can guide lightning. <laughs> 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 anyway, go ahead. I just wanted to pitch that while it was on. Yeah, mind.
1: I. I like it. I like it. So um, when I was reading about mezcal, I found out there was multiple different theories about the origin of it itself, other than the the one with it being a lightning bolt being struck. Sure. Um, so during the research, I found that none of these are actually definitive. And so what I mean by that is that there's a lot of different people that will tell you one story, another folks will tell you another story, another one will tell you another one. And there's no commonality across them. It depends on who you ask, and that's what it is. So the good news is we get to have mezcal regardless, but I'll, I'll walk through some of those theories. One of the theories is that with the arrival of the Spaniards in Mexico, which occurred in 1519, that is when the first distillation of the agave plant was carried out and so that was interesting to me but i was like man you know it, it, how could this be considered to be the elixir of the gods if the spaniards came and helped them do this so that one in my mind doesn't seem like the right thing but if you do a wikipedia lookup of mezcal that's the one that they choose
0: well history's is, whitewashed and right
1: yep Maybe so,
0: maybe so, the people did think that the Spaniards were gods, so it was their that's, elixir. That's,
1: that's very possible. Another theory is that the first distillation of Mezcal was done by the first Filipino sailors that arrived in the country. Now, the thing that was interesting about that, now remember, I mentioned the Spaniards arrived in 1519. Yeah. The Filipino sailors arrived in 1570. So that also didn't really uh, give me a lot of um, confidence in there. But what I did want to talk also, about is also kind
0: of, just uh, weren't the Filipinos uh, weren't they also colonized by Spain? Yeah, yes, they were. Jordan. Okay. Yes. Anyway, so yes, then it would be second. It'd either be first-hand Spain or second-hand Spain if either of those stories are true.
1: Correct. Correct. So the thing that I wanted to mention though around the Filipino arrival is that they actually established coconut plantations on the west coast of, of Mexico. And they ended up creating um, a coconut nectar that was done through uh, fermentation of the coconut uh, 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 mixture that they created. So the thought process was that they created this coconut nectar, which then translated into, uh, Hey, here's how we do the coconut stuff. So now we're translating that to the agave plant. So to me, that was interesting, but again, it seemed like it didn't quite fit. So, the last theory, and this is the one that I'm putting my my money on, uh, not that I'm going to win anything off of it, but it's that the Mesoamerican folks already knew how to, how to distill no, things. Oh,
0: that couldn't yes. be.
1: Yes. And the reason why I'm following this one is that in 1994, some anthropologists from the National Autonomous University of Mexico in the town of Oaxaca found evidence to determine that mezcal was formerly obtained from agave or magui. And in their investigation, they realized that the origin of mezcal possibly dated back to 400 B.C., where, funny enough, it was distilled in clay pots. So they were following the ancestral way of making this in 400 B.C., which was roughly... Uh, 2000 years before, not 2, 000, <laughs> uh, uh, roughly, oh, you know, that is 2015 plus. Yeah, it is. That's, it's that's 1900. 2, years. Yeah. Yeah. F- f- you know, that's uh, uh, 2000 years before the Sp- Spaniards and the Filipinos uh, showed up. So that's the one I'm putting my money on. You're so that probably was one right. Of the, that, that one took me a long time to find. To be honest with you, which is my, interesting.
0: My guess is that because we don't have very good written records of the Mesoamericans right. who were there for so many centuries, like we have some that was like inscribed on the pyramids and some tablets that we found, but right. certainly not as good of written records as we have from Europe, uh, Asia, and Northern Africa. My guess right. is that they just like were like, well, the earliest written form of history means that they invented it then
1: yeah exactly. which
0: which is not how that works but no. i can also see europeans thinking that way because of course absolutely they would.
1: absolutely absolutely so anyways those are the the various theories of mezcal so what i thought we'd move into is kind of the history of mezcal and the magui slash agave plant so we talked about previously that tequila was produced from blue agave, which by the way, uh we happen to have a blue agave plant in our cactus garden in our backyard. So in theory, in theory, we could make tequila. Uh, yeah.
0: There. there you go. You should do but, it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, our blue agave is not large enough for number one. And there's a couple other aspects that need to occur with our blue agave for it to be made. Sure. But it, it, it made me go, wow, that's kind of cool that we, that we have the plant that that you can make tequila out of. So that was kind of slick. Um, and also, as I mentioned, mezcal can be made up to made up from 30 blue different agave types as of, well. Yeah. 30 different types of them. And so they, they, um, because there's up to 30 different types, you know, they're, That's a lot of stuff that's going on. So what has happened is the folks who actually make mezcal have really uh, centered in on seven different notable types of plants. Because these are the ones that were the easiest to use maybe, or the most abundant, or the ones that actually provided the better flavoring. And so I'm just going to name a couple of them. uh, Because one of them appears on, I'm wondering if this one appears on your A mezcal it does online. Should I go go grab it? Yeah,
0: you go grab that. You you explain it while I'm grabbing it.
1: Yeah, sure. So the most common is espadín. Uh, That's the most common agave plant that's on there, and that's the most prominent and predominant agave in Oaxaca. And so espadín in Spanish means small sword. And if you look at the espadín agave or magui plant it does look like a bunch of small swords so maybe if we can remember we'll post a photo of the espadine plant
0: yeah mine says Uh, mine says magui espadine on the back
1: there you go that's that means that it was number one probably manufactured or created in oaxaca and it was using that plant so there's there's a few others and i'm not going to name all of them But, uh, the, the, um, the, the one, the other one that I wanted to mention is, um, the, uh, uh, most famous wild agave is Tobala. And that is one that has a kind of an interesting flavor to it. And that's why that's used because, uh, instead of growing it, it's it's wild and people tend to use that because it's got just a little bit different flavor based on, on how it's fertilized.
0: Okay. So they standardized the practice a little bit. They yeah. could make it over 30. A yep. lot of those are craft mezcals yes. and seven yes. of them are standard mezcals with Espadine Correct. being the most popular. Is that what you said?
1: Y- yes. That's the most popular, uh, most popular, uh, agave. agave. That's used. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So
0: I think so I've only ever had Espadine myself.
1: So so now that I've learned about this, I'm going to start paying a lot more attention as to which ones are which, because I'm certain that it's going to have a little bit different flavor based on how it's made. And so I'm yeah. definitely going to start paying some attention as I go to the uh, store to buy some.
0: So I wonder when we did that Mezcal flight in Boston at Temazcal, if one yeah. of those didn't have Espadine. But every store bought one I've ever had has been Espadine.
1: I would bet that it did during because there was a couple of those that we tried that had, at least one I think that had kind of a, a different very different to flavor it. Yeah, yeah yeah so I'm I'm going to be curious now to do another couple of flights maybe and and do a little more research as I'm trying these so it would be, be fun
0: very cool um, anyway yeah. go ahead
1: so the maguai or agave plant and, and it that term is used interchangeably when you start talking to folks about this um The the other things about that is that the plant itself, not only can they take the heart of that and and distill that down, but they actually have edible flowers. So if for whatever reason you happen to be stuck out in the desert and you see an agave plant, um, the flowers on that are in fact edible. And what ends up happening is that because they're edible and they are out there, folks use them in various different methods of cooking and creating delicacies out of them. Because the flavor of the flowers, again, kind of take on the flavor of that plant itself. And so they're they're used for various different things. Specifically, they can be processed into agave syrup, which a lot of us have, have had in various different things. But they also use the plant itself to create rope and rope fibers and other products that really? can be used. So when we, yeah, kind of so like when hemp. Like, exactly. I was just going to say, so when we think of the hemp plant and what can be done with that, the same type of thing can be done and has been done. With the agave plant it's kind mm. of crazy so the plant itself like i said it can do be food can be used to create certain types of tools and construction materials so when we start thinking about the leaves and the stocks that are part of the plant those things uh can be parts of things that c- can be built into maybe your your as um insulation maybe or a sure. roofing a, for, natural, for, fiber. Yeah, a exactly. natural fiber it, yeah exactly like it,
0: asbestos it, but without cancer <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so.
1: So, so agave itself or the Magui has taken on, you know, a huge prominent role here in the last several years, you know, tequila has been big for a while. Mezcal has really gotten a a big, uh, you know, play in the last, I would call it five to 10 years. It's really kind of grown, but there's another drink, which I don't recall, but it's called pulque. So it's P-U-L-Q-U-E. And that is also derived from agave. Pulque. And
0: I don't know that. Pulque. I've never heard pulque. of that. Yeah, I, I haven't either. That.
1: And that is said to have hallucinogenic properties when
0: consumed in really? high volume. Really? Tell me more yes. about that. So,
1: so I did look that up because I was like, okay, I got to find out what, that, what <laughs> high volumes means. And so, to my understanding, when I had read about pulque, and some of the people who, who manufacture Mezcal also manufacture pulque. Uh, based on some of the agave plants that they're using, if they're not up to snuff for mezcal, they'll they'll make pulque out of it. And so, uh, if you, it's it said that if you have up to four drinks of pulque, you're probably good. But once you hit the fifth and above, then it's hallucinogenic, meaning not just like, hey, I'm really drunk and I th- you know think I'm not seeing double. Yeah, you're actually but
0: seeing visions.
1: Yes, and so that that so drink
0: and, but, what what's the proof of pool k because if you're gonna say five drinks then that's assuming that it's because like my mezcal here that's is 80 proof
1: yeah so i i i i'm sorry i didn't look that up all maybe we can look that up and oh well, i'm gonna to, be
0: researching pool k is it a schedule right. one drug yet
1: or not <laughs> it is from, from my understanding it's not it's not something that's very prominent either Okay, uh, all right so and i don't so I was curious, Jordan, remember when we were, we went to in downtown Phoenix, your mother, myself, and you went to a tequila bar and they had tequila, they had mezcal, and I think they had pulque. And so really now that I understand, on the yes. menu,
0: they had a section for pulque.
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm, I could be making it up in my head.
0: Well, you guys should go back and find out. Cause then we'll I, go back. Yes. And, Cause that was a cool place. They had a lot of led there. lighting. That's the kind yes. of place where I'd want to have a, a hallucinogenic <laughs> experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Well,
1: I, I will definitely look it up. And if it does, we're going to go check it out. Sounds good. Um, but yeah. So anyway, that's, that, uh, that's a third type of uh, adult beverage we'll call it. That's derived from the agave plants. So, okay. Okay. Um in terms of mezcal itself, there's just like with tequila, uh there are multiple different types of of tequila and they're categorized in certain ways. So, one of the ways is the young or white mezcal. Uh this is me- a mezcal that was bottled after distillation and is not subject to any type of rest, maturation, or aging. So basically, they distill it and put it into a bottle and they put it on your on your liquor store shelf and it's good. That's young or, or white mezcal. So like,
0: like new potatoes, not like old potatoes.
1: Exactly. Same. Yes, exactly. The same referencing uh, that I like that reference. Uh, So then there's mezcal rested or rested mezcal. And that's one that has been um, uh, held in wooden containers between two and 12 months. So that doesn't seem like very long, but what ends up happening, just like when they're when they're when you're aging wine or aging bourbon, it takes on some of that wooden flavoring and, and puts that into that. And so having it even in there for as little as two months can help change the, f- the flavor because it absorbs. Of that.
0: Yeah, it absorbs it, whatever the container it's in, kind of thing.
1: Ex- exactly. The key to this is that they they do have that in a stable uh, temperature and hu- and humidity, humidity so controlled. That, yeah. Exactly. So it's not a situation where it's just like sitting out in someone's shed. Uh, because they want to make sure that it's rested and handled in a certain fashion.
0: So it tastes a specific way. Yeah,
1: exactly. The third type of mezcal is aged mezcal. And you can assume that yes, indeed that's aged for more than 12 months. Also in wooden containers and also humidity and temperature controlled. And lastly, the last type of mezcal is mezcal that was matured in glass. So this means that instead of it being stored in some type of a wooden container, it's contained in glass containers for more than 12 months. Now, that's underground, so it's a little bit different. In a space, that has got stable conditions of darkness so that it doesn't affect the flavoring. As you well know, that if you throw something out in the sun, it's going to affect the flavor because it's going to get heated up and cooled down a certain way. Uh, it's got different you know, temperature and humidity controls, um, but it's also, this is crazy, For it to be certified as this type of mezcal, the glass container is larger than five liters and less than 20 liters. How does that
0: make any difference? How does the volume of the container make a difference?
1: So that's a great question. And unfortunately, that was not something I was able to find, but that's the only way that they'll certify it. So so if you only had a four liter container, boom, not certified. Does it count?
0: That's interesting.
1: Exactly. That so, shouldn't
0: make a difference because it's all the same liquid in there. So it doesn't I, shouldn't matter.
1: I would agree with you, but I, that was something that I was not able to, to find out and I'll maybe have to do a little bit more research and, okay. and we can come up with an answer down the road with that. So All right.
0: It's fine. I'll take your lack of answer as an answer.
1: <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Um, Okay. So how do we drink mezcal? So to me, when I think of Mezcal, just similar to the way that you were introduced to Mezcal, uh, a lot of times people think of it as a Mezcal margarita or a Mezcal old-fashioned. But that's not the traditional way that Mezcal is is uh, consumed.
0: Interesting, because I only drink Mezcal margaritas.
1: Well, if you had the Mezcal that you bought me, you would not drink it as a cocktail. It's too good.
0: Right. Um, I would, it would be a sipping. Yeah, exactly. I and never buy exactly. anything like that, though.
1: Well, except for gifts, which I do appreciate.
0: Yeah, well, you're um, a sipper. I'm not a sipper. I'm a drinker.
1: <laughs> well, traditionally, it is sipped with a slice of orange okay, and some worm salt on the side.
0: Yeah, so I, it's not- I have Sal de Gusano in my Mezcal Margarita yes. right now.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> I bought it. Exactly. I just went out of my way to buy it off of Amazon.
1: Exactly. So if you were to go to a mezcal bar it's typically served neat and it's served in what's called a veladora's small glass votive which funny enough that is what i'm drinking mine out of um, really it does not yes Huh? mine does not mine does not have the distinctive cross on the base like most do or it in a uh, clay bowl so think about that way that so I, I would love to go to a mezcal bar that served it in a veladora's the
0: authentic way yeah,
1: or in a clay bowl. Which can you, you imagine Kofi. that?
0: That would be insane. Maybe that bar yes. in Phoenix does it that way. If you, I don't if know. If you order a specific, we should find a place. We should go down to like Bisbee or something. There's got to be a place, yes, close to the border something. in Arizona yep. where they serve authentic mezcal.
1: Absolutely. Hmm. There's So, definitely need to do some research in terms of where we can go because that would be kind of a fun uh,
0: road trip to do. Yeah, I want to drink it out of a clay bowl now. I'm decided on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, in Mexico, if you drink mezcal, other than if you go to a touristy joint, it's typically poured into a jicara, which is a hollowed shell of the fruit from a calabash tree.
0: That's and interesting. So, the Portuguese yes. word jicara is cup.
1: Oh, well, th- there you go. That's that's funny. So there's there's that commonality, obviously. Um, and so not only is it served in that shell, but it's served sitting on a little woven circlet of grass that keeps the vessel from tipping. So if you think about that, that vessel, because it's a shell, it's obviously, you know, it isn't actually flat on the bottom, so it's not necessarily stable. So there's a woven circlet of glass that it's served on top of to keep it from tipping. And so the pours there, they serve with slices of orange and salad of guasano and uh, sometimes chili peppers and dried agave worms.
0: Yeah, like the one on the bottom. I'm so excited to finish this mezcal. I've never <laughs> had one with a worm in it before. But in my one of my favorite movies, Urban Cowboy, yes. right after the convict gets done beating the, the protagonist of the movie... Yes. Um in a kind of domestic violence thing, he pounds an entire bottle of mezcal and I thought that was really impressive. I wasn't impressed by the the domestic violence, but and then at the end he pat when he pounds it, he gets the worm in his mouth and he puts it in between his teeth and it's this really scary shot. <laughs> of him with it in his teeth and i was like i want to do that but without beating women but i can't i also can't pound an entire what is no. this thing of mezcal it doesn't even say how many liters it is oh it's 750 milliliters i can't pound mm-hmm. that so i'm just doing the cocktails but i'm gonna put the worm between my teeth like he does in urban cowboy i promise I'm looking, forward,
1: I'm looking forward to a photo of that
0: i will send it to you and we can put it on the instagram
1: that would be great that'd be great so as long as we're talking about drinking mezcal, uh, obviously you mentioned a mezcal margarita. My favorite mezcal cocktail is a mezcal old fashioned.
0: So that's and interesting. I'd never seen that on a menu. I so don't think. down
1: here, down here, it's all over the place. In fact, I had one last night, knowing we were going to talk about mezcal <laughs> today. I had a mezcal old fashioned last night. Last sure. night we went to we went to a restaurant, a New Mexican restaurant, not not new type of mexican restaurant but in new mexico like the state new mexico and on there they had a mezcal old-fashioned and i absolutely had it now the thing that i found out about this is that the mezcal old-fashioned did not originate in new mexico arizona texas or even mexico the mezcal old-fashioned was invented in new york city
0: get a rope at least it wasn't (laughs) ohio you know
1: exactly. So anyway, uh, the person who invented it uh, brought it back down to to Mexico, and and it, it is seen in bars there as well as it is all over here in the Southwest. So I thought I'd give you know maybe a little bit of uh, the recipe of of what it is. So agave nectar is a piece of that. So instead of using simple syrup, which is what you would use in a regular old fashion, it's agave nectar, and so it, that's part of that bitters which is in in an old-fashioned typically however yeah. however what happens is the people who want to make this and have it be a little bit more oaxacan in flavor is that they will use mole or chocolate flavored instead bitters of agnes
0: you know, bitters
1: yes instead of the, the the traditional bitters correct and so uh, that made me go, hmm, I think I'm going to have to, next time I go to the store, I'm going to see if I can find some mole or chocolate bitter so I can make this. Um, and then obviously, uh, mezcal is a component of that. And then tequila. Tequila also goes into a Oaxacan old-fashioned. Why? Because tequila is mezcal, and so you're combining two different types of mezcal in here. Now, the traditional, the traditional, Way of making the Oaxacan old-fashioned is that you use one and a half ounces of tequila and one half ounce of mezcal. However, the way that that I have seen it and the way that I've had it at restaurants are that they actually flip that and make it one and a half ounces of mezcal and a half ounce of tequila to give yeah. it a little bit more of that smoky flavor.
0: That's how so, I would make it if I were making it at home, because I like Mezcal. I, I don't really yeah. like tequila all that much, but I love the flavor profile of a Mezcal.
1: Right. And then, obviously, the last garnish that's on here is is an orange peel. So, this is very much like a regular old-fashioned, but with a with a twist, if you will. So, that is absolutely my flip, fa- favorite uh, Mezcal drink. Like I said, all over the place down here in Phoenix and, and Arizona, they have this. And so, I've had it. Lots of different places. The one I had last night was was phenomenal. It was very, very good. They definitely had chocolate bitters. It wasn't mole because it didn't have that complex flavor to it, but they definitely had chocolate bitters in there. So that was good.
0: I think um, the Latin population in Boston is like one percent, if I had to guess. So, <laughs> so, sure. so, so I don't know if I can find that here, but that does sound good. And I would try that with the mole bitters. But first I should probably try mole.
1: Yes, you should, you should. So uh, I would assume that there's going to be some good places up there. You can get some mole because, yeah, I mean, you do have a diverse background in, in Boston and people who've traveled to Mexico, obviously, to, 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 to do some, uh, some uh, cooking.
0: So well, yeah, cool. I'll look into it, but let's not say Boston's diverse. <laughs>
1: All right. We'll, we'll say that it's not then. All right. So, so th- that's kind of how you drink it. So the other thing I thought I'd talk about here were other uses of mezcal. And customs around mezcal. So, in Oaxaca, it is believed that mezcal cures scares. And I was like, when I when I was reading about that, I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? Scares. And so, scares. S C A R E S. When I first read it, I'm like, was that a typo? And they're talking about scars, like it cured a scar, like someone got you know, uh, scares. But it's scares. So. The, the, how they're defining scares are when you are severely frightened, your soul can be lost. So if you like the like Sunday
0: a- scaries,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> like, oh, like I got a lot of work to do tomorrow. It's Monday, and it, <laughs> I might die instead of doing all that work.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Or it could be something where you're just super frightened and uh, i'm frightened
0: i got a lot of fucking work to do tomorrow and we're recording a <laughs> podcast about mezcal right now
1: perfect well you can just have another i shot. got It'll, the
0: scares
1: it, it will it will cure your scares um and so uh not only do people drink it to cure the scare but there's a ritual that lasts three days in which the person who is suffering the scare is bathed in temp tem- Temazcal or ancestral sauna made of stone where mezcal is combined with 16 types of herbs to to detoxify the body and recover the loss of the soul so basically okay wait wait wait
0: so hold on the place that we went up here is named after that Temazcal. okay anyway go ahead
1: yes yeah yes jordan that's exactly it so it's a sauna that's made of stone And they keep you in there for three days, and they combine mezcal with 16 different herbs, and you consume that, and that recovers the loss of your soul. So, unfortunately, you have the Sunday Scaries. You don't have three days between now and tomorrow to uh, recover the loss of your soul. You're right. We should probably start
0: recording on Thursday nights or Fridays.
1: (laughs) There you go. There you go. So, so that is one of the customs or or ancient traditions, I will say, of the use of mezcal. Uh, obviously, there's other different med- medicinal types of uses for mezcal. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to mention is, like, how, how does mezcal drinking benefit you? And you're like, well, it makes me feel good. Yep, that's one way. But these are actual legitimate ways in which uh, mezcal uh, is beneficial to you. Now, when you are listening to this, take note because you can talk to your boss and say, I need to drink Mezcal at work because it helps him with these. <laughs> things.
0: I'll say that to my boss tomorrow. Hey, is go. it all right if I bring, um, a, a handle of Mezcal to work?
1: <laughs> so one of the benefits is that is that it improves your digestion. So according to the, what I read, when you eat something heavy, uh, the advice is that you accompany that meal with a drink of mezcal because it contains ethanol which is also known as ethyl alcohol and it increases the number of digestive enzymes that are part of the the proteins carbohydrates carbohydrates and fats and mezcal makes your stomach absorb and speed up the digestive system and also reduces the inflammation that occurs during that process so Simply by so if if your boss is going to take you out to lunch and you know it's going to be a heavy meal, order a mezcal.
0: All right, we'll see what he says. I'll, we'll I'll see. Try and order a mezcal at TGI Fridays and see what they say.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it'll work out real well. Uh, it also helps to regulate cholesterol and triglycerides. So if you have really, it
0: regulates uh, triglyceride, does it?
1: Y- yes. So huh. to decrease to decrease and regulate cholesterol it is recommended to drink a little bit of Mezcal. It helps you because it has the ability to dissolve fats and reduce cholesterol, which, of course, is an excess fat in the blood. Now, um, the the big thing about this is that for this to have the positive effects is that you can't mix Mezcal with other substances. So drinking a Mezcal margarita does not have that same effect as just drinking Mezcal itself.
0: Right, because... Yeah, there's other. Yeah, I understand. There's other impurities and yep. other things. Absolutely. Although uh, ethanol, it, there's no carbohydrates. I'm just thinking about how you, uh, but fats. Ethanol's not a right. fat either.
1: No, but it, but but the the ethanol helps dissolve the fats.
0: But all, yeah, we'll talk. We're gonna have an episode on ethanol and nutritional labels some other time. <laughs> All
1: right, sounds good.
0: But you're—I uh, understand what you're saying. So what you're sure. saying is, stop eating and only drink mezcal. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Got it. Yes. I'm taking it, notes. It, it, see, I told you to do that.
1: Uh, it relieves stress and anxiety. Obviously, uh, alcohol can have a, a little bit of an effect to relax the body if consumed in moderation. Obviously, so that can nope. that can <laughs> that can help relieve stress and anxiety. The other thing though that was again, tying into the cholesterol piece, it helps blood circulation. So it can help with heart diseases. So if you have a heart disease that, uh, is in, that you are dealing with how hel- having mescal can help prevent some of those cardiovascular problems, uh, from car- clogged arteries due to cholesterol. So hold again,
0: on. Is any of this proven or are on. you yeah, just, hold on,
1: hold on. Let me finish, let me finish this and we'll talk through that. Um, also, a, another benefit of mezcal is that because it has the ability to have different flavors and colors and textures, you have the ability to uh, uh, have a flavor profile that uh, that allows you to fit within whatever cooking you're having. So if you want to cook with mezcal, you can do that. And based on what the flavors and profiles of that are, it can help enhance your food so cooking with mezcal just like you could with tequila
0: every Uh, drug from mexico is a miracle drug just saying
1: it is i agree with you chia this it's great helps you sleep better at night so obviously it's relaxing so it helps you potentially fall asleep uh which would allow you to sleep better um and then the other good thing of mezcal and this is more of a cultural thing is that uh because of the way that mezcal is made And where it's made, it helps preserve, obviously, the local traditions and culture of Mexico and in the various different states that it was made. And because mezcal is artisanal uh, and ancestral, and the way that they go about doing this and cooking this, it actually really ties the culture and tradition to the people that are making it now. So, So because they're making it in the same way now that they have always made it, it's it allows the you to bring the younger generation into what your traditions are. So that's that's kind of a, a touchy-feely thing. The other piece of it, and in this I thought was interesting, is you know, job creation, right? Because this is the official drink of Mexico, not tequila, but mezcal is the official drink of Mexico. And so the mezcal industry is. Generating roughly twenty-three thousand direct jobs. So think about that. So that includes
0: 23- tequila jobs, which got to be the largest share of mezcal
1: <laughs> jobs. Maybe, but but that's that's a fair number of jobs. And then indirectly, one hundred and five thousand jobs. That's a fair number of jobs in in one industry, uh, one small niche industry, I would call it. So, um,
0: so what you're thing- saying is to keep myself alive and to keep everybody in Mexico working. I need to develop a habit of drinking Mezcal.
1: Yes, that is what I'm saying. And those of you listening need to do the same. Got it. Uh, the other thing is that 90% of the Mezcal produced in Mexico is handmade and is craft-style Mezcal. So the folks who are making this are actually making it in their own homes or haciendas uh, to create this distilled alcohol. So think about that. It, we're... By consuming this, we're keeping the individual grassroots families in funds. That's so. I say we need to drink more mezcal. What do you think of that?
0: I think that we should make our own mezcal. That would be kind I, of fun.
1: That would be cool.
0: So lightning mezcal, now,
1: lightning mezcal, exactly. So now, now to answer your question from about uh, three minutes ago, a study from the University of Florida found okay. found that taking daily shots of Mezcal helps reduce the levels of triglycerides, glucose, and cholesterol in the blood. But it's
0: fucking University of Florida. Of course they're taking Mezcal shots. Are you joking?
1: I'm just saying. They also found that it had benefits for heart and uh, helped to eradicate coronary artery disease which leads to helping prevent heart attacks. So I'm just saying. Okay, hold on
0: now. Go go Gators. Hold on. Tell me what the control was. Was it whiskey? Was it vodka? Was it water? Because if you're not comparing it against other alcohols, that's kind of a bunk study. You don't know enough about it. You just read the headlines. I did not read the study. Yeah, so we can't quote that shit as fact. There's no, we have no way of knowing it. Yeah, my narrative. All right, everybody, guys, just know that when I'm leading the podcast, I'm not just randomly sourcing studies that I know nothing about. I'm speaking completely out of my ass. I'm referencing no studies. (laughs) I'm only referencing Wikipedia. Okay, so don't (laughs) don't trust studies. Trust Wikipedia. Understood. All right.
1: Sure. All right. So that is everything about mezcal except for one thing. Why is there a worm in Mezcal, Jordan?:
0: That's a good question that I was hoping you would answer today.:
1: All right. Historically, the worm was put into the Mezcal bottle to distinguish it from tequila. Oh. So when, yeah, so when you would go into a store and you wanted to buy tequila, uh, you could find that, and it the way you would is you'd lift up the bottle and say, "Oh, this does not have no a worm. worm.
0: It's tequila." It,
1: so the See, that's, that's not what that, the
0: guy from Urban Cowboy said.
1: Yeah. Yes. So that's as uh, so I was going to say. The funny thing is, as I'm growing up, everyone's like, "Oh, I had the tequila worm," and I'm like, "No, you didn't."
0: And no, of course no, you didn't. I what I'm saying is, the guy in Urban Cowboy goes on a big monologue after beating the woman about how the worm is good luck. Well,
1: that is also a myth.
0: If you eat the it worm, was, you have good luck. I don't know if somebody in Hollywood wrote it's that. It's
1: urban myth. It was urban cowboy. It's urban, urban myth.
0: cowboy. Okay, great. Good to know.
1: So, so that is the reason for the worm specifically was to distinguish between tequila and mezcal.
0: All right. Well, that's less exciting. I'm going to go with the wife beater's explanation.
1: <laughs> well, I'm never going to side with the wife beater. So,
0: I'm not siding with the wife beating. I'm just siding with his explanation of mezcal. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you for taking me on that cultural tour, Dad. I look forward to even further enhancing our interest in Mezcal after this conversation.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: All right, This Week in Media. What do you got, Dad?
1: So, This Week in Media, I have one of the things that I do every year obviously is read a certain number of books. And so on my list this year, I added the Sherlock Holmes books. And so there's a number of them. There's some that are full books and then there's some that are categorized as stories. And so I am currently in the midst of reading, uh, all of the Sherlock Holmes books for this year. Uh, I will, I will, uh, can probably finish them by, I would guess May or June, cause I'm not going to read them straight through, but, I'm thoroughly enjoying them, and it's helping me. I, I've I've been a fan of Sherlock Holmes, but not like a mega fan of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, sure. when we were when we were in London, we uh, were fairly close to 221B Baker Street, and we didn't go there because I wasn't a huge fan, and I don't even know if you even had known of Sherlock Holmes at that point, and if you did, if if you even cared. But the thing that's been interesting to me is I'm also watching uh, some of the movies and a couple TV shows about Sherlock Holmes and it's been fun for me to see how they're drawing some of those things that they have in the movies and from in the TV original shows, books from the original yeah original books by it's, Arthur it's Conan awesome. Doyle yes sir Arthur Arthur Conan sir Arthur so,
0: Coyne, Conan Doyle coining uh, coining coin coin I've had mezcal tonight excuse me exactly
1: Yeah. So absolutely. So they're awesome. I love the books. He's, he's, he's a very good writer. I, I would, I'm going to have to check out other books that he's written outside of the Sherlock Holmes. Obviously he's done multitudes of them and I'm going to have to go back and, and go and find those and, and, and read them. But that's what I had about this week in media is that I'm going through the Sherlock Holmes novels and stories. So
0: nice. Well,
1: how about you? How about yourself, man?
0: I'm late to the game given the time of year but i've been watching the newest season of yellowstone which is created by taylor sheridan who i know uh as david hale from sons of anarchy but also a maker of one of my favorite country westerns hell or high water and of course the creator of yellowstone and then um 1876 and 1923 no, a- a- 1883 1883 doesn't matter 1776 1883 1923 whatever sure um it's good it's i don't think it's as good as the other seasons but i think it's good still i liked so i liked seasons two and three best sure. so far
1: so I would agree with you. I I thought that season 5 was not as good as the other ones uh for a, a multitude of reasons. Uh I, and in fact we're only halfway through season 5 right now cuz the other half will come out in June of 2023. Uh don't I don't I'm not finding it quite as appealing. There are aspects of it that I really do like, but it's not nearly as good I don't think. I think that that maybe Taylor has got himself spread a little too thin because he's not only doing 1883, 1923 and Yellowstone 1886, excuse you. Yes. 1886 or 1894. Uh, he's also, uh, writing the, uh, initial stages of the four sixes, uh, spinoff that he's going to be doing. and, and, the mayor of east town which stars jeremy renner yeah. and so that first season Snowplow was released. accident yep the the first season was released probably about eight months ago and the second season was literally released last week and no so it
0: wasn't eight months ago that was while i was still in school the first season yeah of of mary of town yeah. eight months ago yeah i don't think it was eight months ago
1: okay whatever
0: Maybe um, it was, but I was in North Carolina at least when it came out.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, uh, the second season just was released for that as well. So I'm thinking that he was uh, spread a little thin because he there's no co-writers when you start when when you look at the credits, it's Taylor Sheridan. So I'm wondering if he got himself spread a little thin and his writing for season five it was not as snappy
0: as. Uh, uh, yeah, I just felt like they spent a lot of time on the. Um, Spoiler alert, everybody, the John Dutton and that that environmentalist girl, like a weird left versus right, like, oh, just showing that the left is dumb, which like, whatever, like you can have your opinions on that. But that's not like it wasn't that's not the storyline of the show, like, or at least I don't think it should be like they were wasting too much time on that character. And I didn't think she brought a lot to the table or really did anything. There was like no character arc there. So then why did she get so much screen time? I will tell Uh, you. Why?
1: Piper Parabo is a very good friend of Taylor Sheridan and is married to one of his best friends.
0: Okay, so, but then they should have done more, like, they should have devoted more of the actual, like, plot building to their relationship versus just having her get a lot of screen time, but not actually having a lot to do with the story kind of thing. Right. Because he's was kind of... He's on this whole governor's mission, right? And, like, that should be the main emphasis, but then, like, when you just attach her to it, but she's not really doing anything except learning how stupid she is or not learning how stupid she is, then it's like, okay, what's the point of all this?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think they just were hoping to have another name, quote unquote name in the show. Uh I know you may but me. it's
0: already just one of the biggest shows on TV. It, like it uh, is. everybody it, I know who is. has heard of it. So I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I think though that that they're trying to spice things up by having another name, like I said, as, as the years go on, they're trying to make sure that people keep coming back for it. And she's very famous for for a few different shows and 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 movies, so I think that that maybe was oh, oh I like Piper, so I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna. That's fine. They could have used her and they could have used that character. I'm just saying he didn't write the plot around that character. He just wrote screen time to that character without there being a lot of plot. It's just yeah, it wasn't. I, it doesn't make I, sense. It doesn't add up.
1: I, I agree. I agree with you, and I think that goes to the point that I was making previously, where he's spread too thin. He's trying to write four or five different yeah. shows, and it's tough to to say okay, how is this going to fit in? Uh, you know, so anyway, I'm glad you're watching it.
0: That's my This Week in Media.
1: All right, Jordan, have you heard of the term Umarel?
0: No, I have no idea what not you're su- talking about.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'll spell it for you. It's U M A R E L L, Umarel. And this is. A man of retirement age who spends their time watching construction sites, especially roadworks, stereotypically with hands clasped behind their back and offering unwanted advice to the workers. So it's now, like a back
0: street dri- or backseat driver, but at a construction site.
1: Yes. And not only is that the term for it, but this is a real job. So in the city of Ricone, Uh, In Southeast Bologna, they have allocated 11,000 euro budget to pay a wage to Umaral to oversee work sites in the city. So this is not only someone who's a backseat constructionist, as you will. He stands there with his hands clasped behind his back, watches it happen, and reports back and gets paid for this. I thought that was incredible. And I'm like, how do I get that job?
0: Yeah, you should get that as a retirement job when you retire in like 25, 30 years.
1: Exactly. So, one other side note on that is that (laughs) um, there is a uh, smartphone app that is called Umarels that was released to track the ongoing roadworks and construction sites in and around Bologna and the fast food chain. Burger King, which is your favorite, also hired several umarels as part of their social media marketing campaign to increase its presence in the country. So, this is a big thing in Bologna. I had never heard of this before. Yeah, I'd never heard of this before. I thought it was crazy.
0: That is funny. Yeah.
1: So, that was kind of a neat piece of trivia, I thought. I'll have to look into that. That might be a
0: podcast worthy job.
1: (laughs) So, so. Uh, one of the things that they reference are the see also aspects on the Wikipedia page. And here's the see also things that they have armchair general back seat driver, Dutch uncle, and a few other ones. Uh, Robert. All Nichols. right. Go-
0: We're going to have, well, don't explain any of them. We're going to have I a vote. podcast on
1: this. Sounds great. Awesome. So what did you learn this week, Jordy?
0: Uh, I learned about the great molasses flood of Boston. Which Ooh. was a disaster that occurred January 15th of 1919 in the historic North End, which is the Italian neighborhood of Boston. Yeah uh, apparently there was a molasses making company there, and a a storage tank that was filled with 2.3 million gallons <laughs> of molasses weighing oh, no. 12,000 tons burst. Wow. And the wave of molasses rushed through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour. No,
1: no way!
0: Killing 21 people. What? Who drowned in molasses and <laughs> well, injuring a 100, 150 people. That'd be probably <laughs> the slowest death.
1: If we, I'm, oh, if We're laughing about it, but that would just be awful.
0: Imagine in 1919... You're looking for some good Italian food. You hate yep. Italians because you're you're an Englishman, but you like sure. their food. Sure. And so as you're spitting on the local workers, <laughs> yep. you look ahead of you, you put uh your monocle in your eye, and you go Gosh darn it, Johnny, what's that? And all of a sudden you're swallowing a mouth and noseful <laughs> of molasses moving at 35 miles an hour oh my gosh which is like the speed of a horse right in 1919 or a car in 1919 because I'm guessing they weren't going 60 miles an hour yet no no and you're fucking dead yeah and then the world just moves on you were imbued in molasses like imagine the (laughs) cleanup crew for that I can't I can't that's insane right that's insane (laughs)
1: They've got their hoses out. They're spraying stuff up. Another dead body, Johnny.
0: I have oh my God. no idea why that isn't a part of the freedom trail. <laughs> like, they should be talking about this more. Like, you're already up there for Paul Revere's house and Paul Revere's church and Paul Revere's whatever the fuck. Why <laughs> is nobody talking about the great molasses flood of 1919? So how did you find out about it? I'm curious. I follow a page called Only in Boston, and every day they share three facts about the city of Boston. And on January 15th, they said 104 years ago today, the Great Molasses Flood killed 21 people. And I was like, "What?" what? And I looked it up, and sure enough, the Great Molasses Flood killed 21 people, and 150 were injured in the North End in 1919. And it's like the world just kept turning. So, how does the world keep turning after something like that? That's like 9-11 would, on steroids.
1: I would say it turns very slowly after molasses Good is going Good one, Dad.
0: It depends on how hot the earth is. These days, it yes. move a little quicker.
1: Yes. So I'm curious, Jordan, now that you live there, and I know you don't go to North End all that often, but- Do I curious. fear
0: getting imbued in molasses and dying? Yes, now I do.
1: <laughs> well- Sure. That was one thing, but I was also going to ask if they have like a, a plaque or any type of memorial to the great molasses flood and the 20 people who died.
0: and might get 21. Let's not forget 21. the last one there, but yes. uh, my guess is they probably do. And I have no idea where it's at, but now I'm going to look offended. into it and I'll take a photo yes. with it.
1: I want it. I want and when we go there, I, I definitely want to see it. All
0: right. That's good to know. That's awesome. So I learned about the great molasses flood. Look into it, people. I'm not going to do a pod on it. All right, dad, uh, this weekend, Brian, I'm not going to do one. I'm just going to let you talk, but let's make it snappy. Tell me about your marathon Uh, experience.
1: Well, uh, overall it was great because I finished it, which was my ultimate goal. Uh, there were some good parts of it and some really horrible parts of it. Uh, good parts were that, like I said, I finished, Uh, and it was fun to be a part of that type of a situation. I don't run with other people very often. So running with other people was great. Uh, I got about eight miles in and started having some issues with my back. And I don't mean like, like, oh, my back hurts. I'm like cramps in my back, like right behind, like above your kidneys on both sides. Mm -hmm. Uh, just like severe cramping. And I had fueled and I had, you know, consumed liquids and, and I thought that I was ready to go. But my back was just starting to really cramp up. So I started running with a guy, uh, just asked him, hey, can I run with you for a couple miles? So I ran with him for a couple of miles, hoping that it would just kind of loosen up. But rather than loosening up, that cramping went down my back, stayed in my back, went down my hips, the back of my legs, the sides of my legs, and into my calves. So by the time I got to the 13th mile, I was a hurting puppy. I um had texted your mom. I was wearing my headphones in. I wasn't listening to music. I was just trying to run. Uh and I had texted her um uh, and told her, This is not my day for running. I you've run before Jordan and obviously distances and you understand that there's some days where the run goes spectacular and some days where it goes like shit. Yeah. Well the first eight the first eight miles were flawless and they were I was feeling great. After that it was a, a total slog. Um good news is uh the first 13 miles was my second fastest half marathon time ever Woo-hoo. and had I been able to had I been able to keep that pace and this is a part that I'm that I'm clinging to a little bit had I been able to keep that pace which I had intended to because that was actually a little bit slower than the pace I was planning on running I would have won my age group so um which was crazy to me but with that being said my my body just basically shut down and so for the last 13 miles actually more than 13 but we'll call it the last 13 miles each step was in total and sheer pain. Um, I was very, 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 very thankful that your mother was there. She met me at 13. And when she met me there, I told her, can you meet me at 20? Cause she was going to be at 13 and 26. And I said, can you meet me at 20? Cause it gave me something to look forward to over the next seven miles of of sheer pain. Um, so, uh, it was, it was, you know, a good overall, I was glad that I, that I finished it. I was talking to a coworker of mine who has run a couple of marathons and the thing that she had pointed out to me is, she said, you know what, Brian, you need to be as proud, if not prouder of that marathon than any other race you've ever run. Not just because you finished it. She said, but anybody can enjoy a great race, a race that went super well. People can enjoy and be proud of that. It takes a special situation for you to gut out 13 miles of hell. And you need to be proud that you gutted that out. And it's a lot harder to have a shitty race and finish it than it is to have a good race and finish it. And that's really something that I've looking on. And it wasn't a shitty race in that, you know, like, oh God, everything went bad. It just was very challenging. Um, So that was that. I do have one other uh, anecdote that I wanted to share because you're a huge fan of the office and I thought you would appreciate this. So one of my fears while running this marathon was that it was going to rain uh, for a part of it. and Anytime that you're running for a long distance and things are wet, you tend to have the, uh, the opportunity for chafing to occur. And so that was one of my big fears was chafing. And so I made sure to apply appropriately all the stuff that I use for anti-chafing, but still, it's 26 miles and you're wet. And so I did not have any issues, thank God. However, there's a gentleman that I was running next to almost the whole race. He, he and I kept passing each other the whole race, and it was it was kind of nice to be able to running, run near him. He was at the same pacing as me, and unfortunately, it a lot of the same issues that I was having. Um, but it was kind of a moral uplift. But I passed him for the last time in the 23rd mile. And as I passed him, I said, hey, good luck finishing. I hope everything goes well for you. And I turned to look at him, and the front of his shirt was red from the nipples
0: The down. bloody nips. Yeah, he, classic he, Andy.
1: He had the Andy, and I felt so awful for him because – he obviously had either not used anti-chafing, or he had and it had stopped working at a certain period of time. So uh, that was that was crazy. So overall, marathon, uh, super proud of the fact that I did it. Yeah, uh, congratulations,
0: man. I've yeah. I've never done that. I don't know if I yeah. could.
1: You can and you will at some point. At, at especially my age and my medical uh, situation makes me even prouder of it. Um, one of the things I think that occurred uh, in terms of factoring into that is that uh, you know, with my heart, uh, working as hard as I had for that amount of time. I think that the adrenaline really is what kind of put me over the top on that. you know, like you're helped up for race day and that really affected kind of the way that my heart was, was working. And that kind of caused my body to shut down a bit, which is fine. Um, it is what it is. I got it done. Super proud of
0: it. So that's how it went. Congratulations, dad. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. And the run streak continues, I hear.
1: Yes, the run streak. So as you guys have, if you've been listening, um, I have continued to do a run streak. And that was the other thing, you know, when I got done with the marathon, actually the first thing I, uh, let let me give you one little thing on this. So when you get done with the marathon, they kind of try to shoo you into this little area. That's kind of a festival area. So you can celebrate the fact that you completed the marathon and, and, you know, get all these different things. I felt like overwhelmed and I don't mean overwhelmed, like emotionally. All that was part of it. I was not feeling well. I could tell that my body was not doing well, not just, just the, the legs and back, but I was not doing well. Um, and I did have some concern on various different things and I just wanted to get the hell out of where I was at. But the way they had it set up is that they had this fencing that made that forced you to go. And mom was on one side of the fence and I was on the other and I couldn't get out. And I just, I, I was starting to, to get, I don't want to say panicky cause that's not it, but I was starting to get re- very stressed about not being able to get out of this. And there was a gentleman who saw me and said, Hey, are you doing okay? I said, I am overall, if I can get the hell out of here. And so he came and unlocked the, the gate. I said, I just want to see my wife. I just want to get to my wife. And so he let me do that. And that right there helped me, but man, it was, that was, uh, that was a bit of a, a struggle for me there. So, um, anyway, that's how it went.
0: All right. Well, congratulations. And thanks yeah, thank to everybody you. for listening to you'll understand when you're younger on the history of mezcal hopefully you guys were inspired to drink a lot more mezcal just like i was and i'm gonna go do that right now
1: and thanks to ted hanneshevitz for the theme song that he has it's at the beginning and the end of our of our episodes you can find ted and, ted you and i you and i you and I.